on, my wife saw a t-shirt. It was a political t-shirt, and it was a commentary on the upcoming presidential election. And so it, it featured sort of a ballot with three boxes that you could check, and the third of the three was checked. The first one said Clinton, the second one said Trump, and the third one, the checked one, said we're in big trouble. <laughs> well, actually, that's a polite paraphrase of what it said. <laughs> But, but that's, how <laughs> that's how a lot of, it, it wasn't the F word, but anyway. Um, that's how a lot of the country feels, right? Like we're in big trouble. So much has gone on lately, if you've been following the news. Terrorist attacks in France and elsewhere. Brexit shaking up the European Union. Venezuela's uh, economy collapsing. Uh, then social media videos a few weeks back of showing police gunning down uh, African-Americans seemingly unnecessarily, and then vigilantes in retribution executing and ambushing police officers. And, and, and you see all this, you, you take it in, and it feels like the world is going crazy sometimes. Like everything is quaking and shaking. And meanwhile, we're about to elect a new president. And, and for many people, neither of the main two candidates seem to be people of character, uh, people who are trustworthy or honorable, uh, people we could trust to solve our problems, to put things back together again. And with all this going on, it feels to me like the world has in some ways, at least in the, the recent future, uh, recent past, sorry, reached new levels of fear and anxiety. Does anyone else feel the anxiety? So what do we do? What do we do? What do we as a church, as followers of Jesus, do to respond to this? And is there a better t-shirt that we could wear than just the one that says we're in big trouble? As the church of Jesus Christ, what kind of t-shirt, metaphorically speaking, could we wear to remind ourselves and to send a message to the world around us about how we're to respond to all of this? Well, today's passage gives us the answer. Today's passage is an amazing revelation seen by a disciple of Jesus named John. This revelation has been given to John by Jesus in John's own troubled times, times which, in fact, as we'll see, were far worse than the times we're facing today. And this vision which John saw, which Jesus gave him, gives us an amazing picture, an amazing new perspective on what is actually going on in the world. In this picture, this vision, is the possibility to transform our perspectives and our emotions and our lives. This vision offers encouragement to us and good news to share with others. And at the same time, this picture rebukes some of our prominent Christian leaders and voices today, as we'll see. And so let's take a look at what John saw, what Jesus showed him. We can't look at it all in detail this morning. There's so much here. But let's begin by looking at these first six verses, and next week we'll come back and we'll look at some more of it. First, notice what John sees right at the beginning in the first verse. Are you ready? The door to heaven is standing open. And a voice says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And immediately, John is ushered in 
to heaven. John is enabled to see what is happening beyond the door. What is happening in heaven, in the throne room, at the control center of the universe. What a gift. What a gift that the door to heaven is standing open. What a gift to be invited through the door to see what is actually happening inside. To see what is actually happening in the world from the perspective of heaven. It's Jesus who offers this gift. Back in Revelation 1, the very first uh, verse of this book, the book of Revelation begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. What we see, what John shows us about what is going on in heaven is a gift from God given about Jesus and given to Jesus to give to us. Oh, do we need this gift? If we are going, uh, sorry, if we are not going to tremble with anxiety after every news cycle, if we aren't going to be paralyzed by fear and worry, if we aren't going to just wear the t-shirt which concludes we're in big trouble, then we need this gift. We need to see, we need to know what John sees in this vision. And what does John see? Well, the very first thing John sees in verse 2, and the most important thing, is a throne with someone sitting on it. There is a throne at the center of the universe, and there is someone sitting on it. Isn't that great news? The world is not like a car careening down the highway with no one at the wheel. The world is not like a ship driven by stormy seas with no one at the rudder. Someone is at the wheel. Someone has their hands on the controls. There is a throne with someone sitting on it. Amen? This revelation in itself should calm our hearts. It should reduce our fears and our anxieties. Troubles may come. Tragedies may happen. Political leaders may rise and fall. But all the while, above it all, someone is on the throne. You may have heard the old preacher say, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. It's that one on the throne Someone who is not going to fall off the throne. Someone who is going to outlast this election cycle. That's what our religious leaders should be reminding us of. Instead of feeding our fears and ordering, or rather offering us a steady diet of bad news, which incidentally is often followed by a fundraising appeal or a request to support their cause or candidate, instead of that, our Christian leaders should be reminding us that we are not to fear, we are not to worry. Because there is good news. That's what the gospel means, right? Good news. And we are gospel people. We are good news people. And that good news tells us that despite our troubles, despite political uncertainty, someone is on the throne. Other rulers have come and gone. Think of the last century alone and the mighty rulers who claimed to be someone great and promised to set up unshakable kingdoms. Hitler came and went. Stalin came and went. The Soviet Union came and went. Apartheid South Africa came and went. Pol Pot came and went. The Khmer Rouge came and went. Castro, Hussein, Marcos, Bin Laden, they came and went. 
In John's day, it was the Roman Caesar. In John's day, this world ruler, Domitian at the time, had gotten so egotistical and also so paranoid that he had expected that everyone in the kingdom worship him as a sign of their being good patriotic Romans. And when followers of Jesus like John refused because they worshiped Jesus alone, the Roman Empire started having them hunted down, having them tortured and killed. You think we have problems today. And yet in time, even that Caesar came and went. And so did the Caesars after him. But through it all, all the while, down through the centuries, someone is still on the throne. Let's take a look then at who this one is who is on the throne. John's careful not to describe this one because the one on the throne is indescribable. And yet indirectly using symbols and images, John paints for us a picture of what sort of one this is who is on the throne. First, verse 3, the one who sits there on the throne has the appearance of jasper and ruby. Think beauty. Think brilliance. Think rarity and value. The one on the throne is not common or ordinary. The one on the throne is precious and valuable, full of glory and majesty and brilliant beauty. The one on the throne doesn't need makeup artists and hairstylists and brass band fanfares or bright spotlights to conjure up greatness. No, the one on the throne just radiates majesty. Second, the one on the throne is also powerful beyond belief. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. That's power, right? You ever been in a really bad thunderstorm? (laughs) That's power. And the one on the throne has no, no lack of power to accomplish that one's purposes. How much power? Verse 6. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. This image seems to be reminding us of the reality that we see all through Scripture, that there is a sea, and often the sea in Scripture is identified as is, is symbolizing uh, The storms, the tumultuous waves, uh, it's a symbol of chaos, of upheaval, of destruction and death. And that's what the world feels like sometimes, right? The nations rage and, and quake. Disturbing events toss us to and fro. Chaos and upheaval roll and pitch like waves. And yet, what do we see in front of the throne? We see the sea there is as calm as a sheet of glass, as clear as crystal. Totally subdued, totally at peace, completely stilled, not a ripple to break its surface. No longer threatening, but tranquil and beautiful. That's what happens to chaos in the presence of the one on the throne. Won't it be great when that's true in this world as well? One day it will be. But in the meantime, whenever we let Jesus be Lord and submit to his will, we get to experience a taste of that powerful peace now, which is coming fully in the future. That's why we pray, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next, third, verse 5, in front of the throne, seven lamps are blazing. And these are the seven spirits of God. 
Now, why seven spirits? Because elsewhere in the Bible, the Holy Spirit's always described as being one spirit. Why now seven? Are these a different seven spirits? No, this is probably just a different way of describing the one Holy Spirit. And that's why some translations describe the spirit here as the sevenfold spirit of God. But, but again, why the number seven? Well, probably because if you begin reading Revelation in chapter one, we're reminded that John originally wrote this letter of Revelation to seven churches. Revelation is a letter. It's been written to seven churches. So seven churches and the spirit depicted as a sevenfold spirit. There's enough, I think, the point here is that there is enough Holy Spirit to go around. The Holy Spirit is present in all of the churches. In this case, all seven. And by extension, the Holy Spirit is present in every church, uniquely with us, each of us. God's Spirit is with God's people wherever we may be. And, and here John sees the Spirit as being like a lamp, casting light into Dark corners, lighting up hidden places. And so all around the throne there is light. Nothing is hidden. The one on the throne is not in the dark about what's going on. The one on the throne observes all, notices all, sees it all for what it really is. And God, through his spirit, comes to be with us as his churches too, to shine God's light on us and in us. That's why elsewhere in the book of Revelation, Jesus says that he gives lampstands to his churches. Again, the lamp is the symbol of the Holy Spirit here we see. So that we as God's people can see what God sees. So that we can see things the way they really are. A lamp of the Holy Spirit burns among us, giving light. There's no room for trickery, no room for deception, no room for cover-up. Only the honest truth in the presence of God's Spirit. Who is that light? That's how things are when the one on the throne and where the one on the throne rules. Next, fourth, around the throne, John tells us there is a rainbow in verse 3. A rainbow is an important image in the Bible, right? Think back to Noah's flood. Many of us learned it in Sunday school when we were children. The world had become horribly evil at that time. It was oppressive. It was corrupt. It was full of suffering and crime and depravity. And so God's heart was deeply, deeply grieved. And God chose to clean house. God chose to judge those who were evil through a great flood, to do away with oppression, to do away with violence. And yet at the same time, to rescue and to preserve his creation through the ark so that the world would be cleansed and washed and then start over with a new beginning. And then God sent a rainbow in the sky as a promise afterwards that in God's mercy, the one on the throne would never destroy the earth again by a flood. That rainbow, John sees, is now around the throne. So get this. This means that when the one on the throne of the universe looks out at the world, looks out at all that goes on today, looks out at us, The one on the throne sees us through that rainbow. Sees us through God's promise to be merciful and to be patient. No wonder bad people get away with doing bad things. 
No wonder the world is sometimes a mess. The one on the throne sees it all, but also sees the rainbow. Sees and remembers the promise to be patient, to offer second chances and third and fourth chances. And sometimes we wish the one on the throne would step in and punish, step in and judge, make things right, do away with evil. And yet aren't you glad that God doesn't do that to you? That that one on the throne gives you second chances and new beginnings. That the one on the throne sees you through that rainbow with mercy and grace. And yet that mercy and grace doesn't cause the one on the throne to fall off the throne. No, the ruler is still in charge, still powerful and mighty, and still will somehow work things out for good in the end. There is still someone on the throne. Next, fifth, John looks and sees 24 other people around the throne. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. 24 elders, 24, 12, and 12. If you read the book of Revelation, particularly the last few chapters, it becomes pretty clear that these represent the whole people of God, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New Testament. Representatives of all of God's people, old and new, on thrones of their own, in the presence of the great throne, ruling with the ruler, representing us, God's people. We are represented at the throne as we, as God's people, rule with the one on the throne. Isn't that what Jesus told us would happen? That we, as God's people, would be a royal priesthood, that we would reign with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says that's already begun. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We as God's people, as Christ's followers, have an identity. We have been given a calling. And that is to participate in reigning with the one who is on the throne. Rather than worrying, rather than wringing our hands and complaining to one another about how bad the world has gotten... Instead, we are to encourage one another to remind each other of the good news that Jesus showed John to show us in this revelation. John says to us in today's passage, The door to heaven was open, and as a gift, Jesus invited me in to take a look. And guess what I saw? Good news! Someone is on the throne! Someone good, someone beautiful, someone exceptional and glorious. Someone powerful, so mighty that even the untamable quaking and storming of the sea is stilled as calm as glass in that one's presence. And that one on the throne sees the world, sees all like a lamp shining into dark corners. Nothing is hidden from that one's gaze. Yet the one on the throne sees all, sees you and me and those around us, sees our nation and our world with eyes of grace. And with eyes of mercy. And along with the one on the throne are other thrones. The people of God who participate in the reigning, in the rule of the one on the throne. As we too, as God's people, seek God's kingdom. And see the world with eyes of mercy and with grace and with new beginnings. That's the good news that John gives us. 
It's, it's the vision Jesus gave John to encourage John in his own very dark times and to encourage us in ours. So what does this look like to live in light of this vision? Well, that's a big part of uh, the four weeks that our family spent in Minneapolis. That's a big part of what it was about. We were there to spend time with a few churches who wear a different kind of t-shirt. Because there are two kinds of churches, and I'm oversimplifying here, but bear with me. One kind of church sees themselves as a warehouse. What's the purpose of a warehouse? It's to store stuff and to protect stuff, to keep it safe from the rain, from the weather, from the thieves, from the damage. And many churches take this posture. This is their identity. They're afraid of the world, afraid of those who believe differently and act differently from them, afraid of the negative influence or the immorality that those people might uh, have or encourage. And so such Christians seek out the church to be a warehouse for shelter and protection. They huddle inside, they look for security, they look for safety. But that's not the kind of church we're trying to be at CBC. We're trying to be the other kind of church, the kind of church which doesn't have to be afraid because we believe the good news that there's someone on the throne and that we've been called to join in with the 24 who sit on thrones, spreading the rule, spreading the influence of the one on the throne. And that's what the churches we spent time with in Minneapolis were seeking to do. And so we were just seeing what we could learn from them. And so I met some people at, at one of those churches uh, who had formed a little group called Captives Freed. They're not your average small group because their reason for being together is to help those caught in sex trafficking find freedom. Because they believe that in the presence of the one on the throne, broken, vulnerable woman, women can't go on being exploited and abused. And that if God's people are ruling with the one on the throne, seeking first God's rule, God's kingdom, then we will have a role to play in helping those caught in the sex trade to get free of it. Now, as soon as you start learning about the sex trade, it's overwhelming. It's, it's dark. It's creepy. It uh, can even be downright dangerous. But when you have your eyes on the one who is on the throne... You can take off your we're in big trouble t-shirt and put on a different one. And that's what this group of people have done. And so they go out on Friday nights once or twice a month. They bring care packages of cupcakes, uh, makeup kits, encouraging notes, cards. And they go into the strip clubs of Minneapolis. The men stay out in the van and pray. But the women go in and they give gifts to the women working inside. And as they have openings, they have conversations they build relationships to see where those lead. Now that might seem really risky to you. It, it might seem hard and, and overwhelming and scary. But you know what? I got to know some of the people doing this. And guess what? They're just ordinary people. And, and sure, they were scared at first too. They were overwhelmed. They were intimidated. But they sensed the one on the throne calling them to do this. And so what did they do? Well, they prayed and they, they researched and they found um, some others who do this sort of thing and they sought them out and they said, will you train us? Will you show us how to do it too? And, and they learned and, and then they started doing it. They made mistakes along the way. They experienced failure. They 
stuck with it, though, and they encouraged each other, and now it's starting to bear fruit. And, and as you can imagine, as they've engaged in this mission together, they've grown tighter as a group. Tighter than they probably could have if their goal as a small group was just to stay in a safe place and protect one another from the scary world outside. And they've also, as you can imagine, been stretched spiritually as a group. As they've prayed hard, as they've dug into God's word for encouragement and for strength. And as a result, they've grown more spiritually by living God's kingdom out than I think they would have if they just stayed in someone's living room and studied and read about God's kingdom. Another thing that this church does during the summer is to have a barbecue in a park twice a month. And uh, not just to enjoy fellowship and fun together, but rather they go with the idea of throwing a party for the neighborhood. And so they bring extra food to share. And they set up, not off by themselves uh, in a corner, but, but right near the play equipment where all the kids and the families are. And ahead of time, they, they invite their friends and their neighbors um, to come meet them and eat with them at the park. But also while they're there, they, they, they look for new people to invite. And the, the pastors challenge them to not only hang out with the people they already know, but to introduce themselves to someone new, try to learn their story. And our family went to two of these barbecues, and I'll tell you, they look pretty much like you'd expect any church picnic to look like. And you had your shy people who were scared to talk to anyone new. You also had your gregarious people who bounced around and talked to just about everybody there. But, but here's the difference. Despite the messy ordinariness that you'd find at any church picnic, there was an intentionality here. And, and so as you began to look closer, you, you, you realized that, that the church was interacting with the community. In fact, it was hard to figure out exactly where the church left off and where the community began. Because they'd done these picnics month by month, year by year, summer by summer, and so there were regulars who came, and they weren't all church people. They were community people, too. And relationships were being formed, and chances would come up to, to pray for people, to care for people, to help people in practical ways. And, and after a while, for some of these neighborhood people, this church had become their church. Maybe they'd never come on Sunday mornings, or certainly had never intended to come. But they'd been drawn in by the back door. Because the church had shown up where they lived, in their neighborhood, in their park, to be the church for them. And as they'd gotten to taste the love and to taste the care and to taste the peace and hope that the church had, before they knew it, these people were being drawn in. They were being cared for and prayed for and also were then helping to care for others and having conversations about Jesus along the way. Why? Why did all this happen? Because this church isn't afraid. It doesn't wear the t-shirt which says we're in big trouble. No, it knows that there is someone on the throne. And that's what we want to be too. So, question. Will you make a decision to tune out the anxiety? To tune out the worry? Which is out there in the culture all around us. Sure, these are concerning times, and we need to take them seriously. We need to vote. We need to engage politically. But we don't need to do it from a place of fear. 
but rather we can do it from a place of faith and hope. Hope and faith that however things go in October and beyond, there is still someone on the throne. Someone who will endure and whose kingdom we have the privilege of representing and participating in. So now as we pray, um, I invite you to ask yourself, God, what am I afraid of? What's been worrying me this week, this month? Can you look through the door, the open door, and see what John sees? Can you see the good news that there's someone on the throne? Let's pray. God, open our hearts, open our minds to see the vision, the gift that you gave Jesus to give John, to give us. To see the way things really are. And I pray that that vision will melt our fear, will remove our anxiety, even though it rages all around us, among those who don't think anyone's on the throne. I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope and peace that you are on the throne. And that while we don't know what the future holds, we know who holds the future. We know that your kingdom will endure. Give us creativity, give us faith. Give us direction as to how we can participate in your kingdom, even as it comes now, in us, around us, and in the places you send us. In Jesus' name, amen.